Welcome to Simmer Down with Viv. I'm your host, Vivian Chan. Each week, we will dive into a topic that I'm hungry for. I may or may not have a friend that will join me. The conversation may be a sweet one or just plain salty, but I promise you that it will be full of flavor. So much flavor that you can taste it with a recipe dedicated to that specific episode. Be sure to follow Simmer Down with Viv on Instagram for all recipe links, updates, and info. Now get comfy because we're going to turn the heat on low, let those baby bubbles pop, and simmer down into this week's juicy conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to a brand new episode of Simmer Down with Viv. This week I have a special guest with me because we're going to be diving into the conversation about being Asian American in 2020. Please welcome Serena Kuo. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited because Serena is also Asian American. Mm -hmm. Serena, give us a little background about how you came to New York and all of that jazz. Sure. Um, So I was born and raised in Taipei, Taiwan. I spent the first 11 years of my life there. Uh, I was an only child. And when I was 11, I moved with my parents to Northern California in the Silicon Valley. And um, I spent my adolescence in California and moved to New York and have been a resident of Brooklyn, New York for uh, a very long time now, for <laughs> over a decade. <laughs> and Serena and I have worked together on numerous projects, so that's how we got to know each other. But we both connected on recipes that I'm familiar with and she's familiar with, although she's from Taiwan and I'm from Hong Kong. The similarities are, are pretty much there. Mm-hmm. Flavor profiles, cooking techniques, all of that. Yeah. Um, so we really bonded over food. And then recently we started talking about just like being Asian American, how what an exciting time it was, especially I feel like last year we had a big boom in the media. Oh, world. yeah. Like yeah. beforehand, I remember the first time I've ever seen an Asian American on tv was not tv on like movies or any kind of media was jackie chan in like rush hour Uh uh-huh yeah i remember so i grew up since i spent my first 11 years in taiwan i have some memories of my childhood and about the entertainment industry is that there's the eastern world and there's the western world and those two don't touch so growing up you know we go to movie theaters and i remember the first movie that i saw in movie theaters was Jurassic Park. Oh, that I saw was mine it. too. Really? Yes. Uh, it's such a good movie. Such a good movie. It really movie. stands the test of time. Yes. Um, Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's magical. Yes. It's magical. Um, but I remember seeing that. And I remember like knowing all the names of the Western movie stars. And then knowing all the names of like the Eastern movie stars. But mm-hmm. there are two different worlds. And when I moved to the U.S. And... I, I just never really expected those two worlds to ever collide for some reason. It was not the norm. It was not within my expectation. Which, like, looking back, I you know, it's so messed up to think that they would never intersect because they're very much in the same world, but that was just a reality for so long. And then I remember Rumble in the Bronx. Rumble in the Bronx, I remember, yeah. yes. Rumble in the Bronx. That was way before Rush Hour time, by the way. Yeah, it was like the gateway that allowed Jackie Chan to enter into Hollywood in an American production. It was an American production. Ooh, we need to fact check that. But that was definitely the first time when Jackie Chan made his name into the mainstream Western world. And that was huge. That was like, that was huge. I can't even quite put words to how 
surreal of a moment it is to suddenly have you know my my classmates who are not from Asia talk about Jackie Chan and looking up to him and that was that was a really big deal um but it took a long time I think that we had that and we had you know mostly a lot of art house movies or movies that you only see in big cities like you have um, things that are made by um, like Zhang Yimo or you have um, Ang Lee for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Right. Ang, was a big- Ang, Lee, Ang Lee was a big thing. That was that that was a while ago, too. Um, but, you know, it's it's also another thing. It's like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is a very genre film. Yes. Um, so it definitely tied a lot into kind of not to put Ainley down because Ainley is one of my heroes, but that genre is very specifically Asian in a kind of stereotypical way. So I think that because of how successful that movie is in the mainstream, it did bring a lot of attention onto Asian cinema. Um, But it, it was just that there's still kind of a bubble. There's still a kind of a separation between the Asian cinema and the stories they tell with Western audiences before we get any deeper, because this is a conversation that Serena is extremely passionate about, yeah. we need to know a little more about Serena's background. So although Serena told you about where she's from and where she grew up, but Serena, please tell people why you're so connected with film. Sure. So I'm a filmmaker in New York City, and Viv and I, we actually met on set working yep. together. So um, I've always been very passionate about film. Not only is it my bread and butter, but it's also a pastime. It's also something that I spend time with um, when I'm not working in a movie theaters or at home. Uh, So I'm very much kind of ingratiated within the culture of of cinema. You know so much about film. I know that there is like a Oscars pool one year and I remember we were on set and I was like, Serena, what are the answers? Who's going to (laughs) win Best Picture? Who's going to win Best Actress? Um, And you were pretty spot on. So you are definitely an expert in that. Thank you. And I know that you're also really passionate about especially Asian communities and like mm-hmm. Asian films because it's part of our culture. It and is. I completely understand what you meant by having those two worlds collide, but also very separate. Mm-hmm. So growing up, my mom watched a lot of TVB. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but it's a like a Hong Kong channel. And there were like soap operas on there mm-hmm. or specials like Miss Hong Kong pageants. And I remember no one in like my American school ever ever understood that however a lot of people in my chinese school would be like oh did you watch the pageant and we would get it on these vhs tapes because there was no cable back Mm -hmm. then or like dvds or whatever and we would watch it like maybe a week or two weeks after it happened yeah and there were chinese newspapers and like media magazines kind of like their their version of people or us weekly but had all the gossip so my parents were really in tune with the hong kong media world like superstars and movies and songs and all of that, but they never understood that. So I always felt like I was in between because mm-hmm. I knew a little bit of that, but I could never bring it into my real life. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it's. I think that there is something beautiful about the fact that we, as people from different cultural backgrounds, can hold on to certain kind of um, appreciations and understanding of these cultures that no outside cultures, no other cultures can you know, uh, I think there's something very special about our kind of exclusive understanding into where we're from, where our ancestors are from. Um, but I also think that sometimes you you kind of feel 
you do feel like it, it there is there's a little bit of a separation between people from different backgrounds and we're constantly trying to bridge them but um but you know it's a it's a mode of a give and take it's holding on to something that makes you special but at the same time being able to reach out and appreciate other cultures and have other cultures understand us in the way where we still have control over our own narratives a hundred percent yeah and one of the biggest things i don't know if this is true how you feel but the one difference is american films versus asian films are sex scenes it's a huge thing <laughs> yeah Can I, like i remember the first time i watched like a soap opera they would kiss yeah and then somehow like literally turns like fades away into darkness and they were like pregnant and so kissing uh-huh. means that you could get pregnant whereas if you watch like a pg-13 you're basically going to second base yeah and you're not pregnant so i was just like i don't know what happens like when you're trying to fill in those gaps it's it's crazy it's yeah and also because Asian culture is so conservative, if I ever watch like reality TV, my mom is like, "What is happening? Mm-hmm. Like real world, road rules, like anything like that." Like people would just make out, yeah, and like I mean, push the envelope a little more, Temptation Island, mm-hmm. things like that. So there's a huge contrast in what is acceptable as society versus what they want more of. Right. It's so interesting. Wait, okay, so growing up. You mentioned that there are all these like dramas or whatever uh-huh. it is that you your parents would watch, and we would watch similar things as well. There's a series, um, and in Chinese it's called Chong Yao, which is basically um, this writer. She's a showrunner, and she would write all these uh, little like mini series dramas. They're all love stories with its like beautiful, florid, poetic Chinese language. Uh-huh. And they would, you know, they're all centered around romances. But at most that they do is this very chaste, like one second long kiss. No open mouth. Never. No tongue. Oh, yeah. no, no, absolutely And it would, it would take episodes and episodes to build. And then like one of them would, would you know, get burned in a fire. And then not, like nothing would happen for another seven episodes. And... And, you know, the very last episode, they would kiss, but would be very, very far away. And there would be like a branch in front of them. But it's it's very much that kind of culture. And I remember when I was growing up watching cable television with my mother. And we watched like a PG-13 movie. Like Cruel and, Intentions. Oh, gosh, no, no. I would <laughs> never watch Cruel Intentions with my mother. I'm talking about like, you know... WB even went oh, back yeah, when yeah. the CW was the WB mm-hmm. and watching like an episode of Dawson's Creek oh, or something goodness. like that with my mom and my mother would just be like oh that is so gross and she would blush and turn away and like walk back to her room and ah uh, it's 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 really it's it's really something else it's very different and growing up you you're trying to find that medium but then you have no other way of connecting because we never saw Asians on like as part of a movie set mm-hmm. or never being an actress or an actor definitely never being the the lead no besides no. jackie chan i feel like i saw real world and it was jamie mm-hmm. from san francisco jamie chung is now married to brian greenberg mm-hmm. and i remember seeing her she was there was no accent which mm-hmm. was a huge thing because yes growing up i would watch like martin yang cook on pbs yeah but he always had that thick accent and he only made like stir fries or yeah. Like Chinese desserts. Anything that was Chinese. He wouldn't it's touch anything. Yeah. A hundred percent. So when I saw Jamie Chow, she had no accent. She was beautiful. But she was more on the conservative side. I remember one of the episodes, her mom came to visit. And her mom was just like, what is this living space? Like, I don't understand. And she 
she never hooked up with any, anyone. I think she like kissed someone, but that was really the extent of it. Mm. But I remember I was like, wow, she was able to be like so composed. Meanwhile, her castmates or housemates were like doing God knows what in the bathroom because you can never film in the bathroom. But then <laughs> mics were always hot. So then we heard things. See, like I never smooth. watched the real world, oh. but I, I know what the real world is about. I watched a show called, I, I watched a show called, called Terrace House, which is basically Japanese real world. It's happening right now. Oh, it's, it's on huge. Netflix. Yeah, there are some episodes on Netflix. Uh, check that show out. Okay. And you'll see. If you want to see, like, a difference, cultural difference at its, like, core, those two. Terrace House is absolutely amazing, by the way. Um, but it's basically, it's it's kind of like the real world. It's a group of young people living together uh, in, in a house. Um, and and just check out the difference. I'm I'm so excited. I'm yeah. gonna definitely check that out because I saw it in my queue, like suggested. I'm like, it's this doesn't seem raunchy enough for addictive. me. Addictive. Oh, okay. it's definitely not, but it's highly addictive. It's so good. I'm gonna tune in. Um, yeah, and you know, in the same vein of okay, so you're talking about never seeing uh, a Asian American or Asian protagonist lead actor in a tv show or movie for the longest time it's absolutely true and whenever they do exist they're usually existing in a way that is very much like they exist because they're asian yeah the and, nerd right or it's because like remember karate kid 2 oh yes when daniel san was in japan yep and then there's that love story that he has with the the girl because she's from japan so obviously you right. need to have a japanese person yeah i get it but it's still centered very much around a western narrative yes and it's basically like they're going to this exotic world um that and... is the one word if you're asian it's always exotic yeah. it doesn't matter if you're japanese it doesn't matter if you're thai it doesn't matter if you're chinese exotic mm-hmm. it's like i'm some kind of like tiger yeah That's... yeah and there's some sort of mystical magic that i'm trying to like I, that I have in my in my home, and whenever you go into that, you hear a flute in a background. Oh, or, you know it, or like oh, yeah. the harp. Yeah, exactly. That that yeah. But then I think when it took, I mean, things were on the positive. Things things made things were going on upswing because I remember when Harold and Kumar mm-hmm. went to White Castle. Yeah, because finally, Harold was smart. But he was also just like anyone else. He just wants to get high. Exactly. And like, I don't think ever Asians were ever shown in that light. Yeah, both of them. Both Asians. Yes. Oh, yes. Like Harold and Kumar, because they're both Asian, and they're supposed to be like these nerdy, good Asians, and they didn't care. They just wanted to get high, Mm -hmm. and they just want to... Yep. And they're just completely... You know, they're not featured because they're Asian anymore. They're just two unique characters who have... They're Asian-ness as part of their identities, yes. but not all of them. They're multidimensional characters who exist because of a number of different things associated with their personalities and backgrounds. They weren't pigeonholed. No. And they weren't typecast just to fulfill that mathematician, that science, that nerd, whatever, the, the submissive. Mm-hmm. And I'm yep. sick of seeing those. But I feel like in recent times, I would say maybe in the past three years, mm-hmm. we have really been on upswing. Yeah, yeah, we have, and especially in the mainstream of things. I think that I think that it's very important for something to be normalized. Um, by that I mean, of course, there's there's a ton of great Asian cinema out there. Historically speaking, you have like Akira Kurosawa, who's made a ton of really classic cinematic Japanese masterpieces. You have things like Misaki, who I've 
you know, we've recently yes. talked about with, you know, he basically the Walt Disney of Japan who's made decades of, of masterpieces. And, but the thing is, there's a certain kind of art house element to them. If you're a cinephile, you will know those movies. But the thing is, the mass audience, the mass Western audience are not familiar with them. And before they reach that point, they're almost not allowed to be bad. And I think that when something is truly successfully existing inside the movie industry is when they, it's okay for them to be mediocre or okay for them to be bad and still make money. The spotlight's not on them to do us proud, but to certainly just exist as, a, as something that generates revenue in the Hollywood machine, which mm-hmm. is ultimately what Hollywood is about. It's, it's a business, you know, it's, it's a business that, of course, like you will thrive if you make a quality product, but ultimately it's something that makes money. And for something to keep existing, it needs to return a box office success, which brings us to Crazy Rich Asians. Crazy Rich Asian. It, I mean, it's a winner mm-hmm. because it hits everything that you can imagine. Glam. <laughs> Clam, family it's issues, clam. yeah, and romance. It has like the bling. It has like the flashiness. I mean, it has, the glam. Yeah. Let's go back to the glam. Let's go to the wedding dress scene, <laughs> the wedding scene, not hers. I mean, like dipping the toe and having like pond. I mean, I can't get over that wedding scene mm-hmm. ever. And of course, you have Constance Wu and Henry Golding, who did not have to have an accent. I am so sick of sick and tired of actors and actresses constantly giving this accent whether it's i mean most of the time it's fake like ken jong mm-hmm. hangover he had to keep playing up that accent even though yeah. he has no accent at all and i have to say big hands of applause to when aquafina's father who was played by ken jong came in with an accent i was like oh god here we go and he goes no 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 i don't have that accent i loved it because people are so mm-hmm. comfortable and used to seeing people with the accent even though you know in real life he doesn't have it but it's a Apparently gives people a level of comfort like oh here comes the Asian actor yeah therefore they need to fulfill XYZ criteria so they can get this role mm-hmm right exactly and to breaking to break out of that so that is not our one qualifying factor right and that's where tokenism comfort comes from which is like oh we need an Asian character here and that's it to be inclusive right to be inclusive or to you know represent some sort of side storyline but that's not all there is to us obviously being asian is a very integral part of our identity but that is just not the only thing that there exists about us like you would not say that for a white actor you don't go oh we need a white actor you would go oh What's this person's background? What's this person's flaws? All mm-hmm. those other things. That's what makes a character. Um, so, yeah. So Crazy Rich Asians was great because while it was also entertaining, and I, I personally like, deeply enjoyed it in so many ways, it's also not an art house movie. It's not something with a dense script that somebody needs to analyze and break apart in order to understand. It's not something that people need to seek out or to, you know, gain some sort of specific film literacy to to really appreciate. It's for the mass audience. It's a rom-com. It's a rom-com. It's not perfect in that cinephile sense, but that's exactly what it needs to be. 
Um, everyone can digest it. Everyone can relate to it. We all have characters in our lives like that. Whether it's the Aquafina going back, back, bitch, mm-hmm. or whether it's that mother that you're always seeking approval for. And it doesn't have to be an Asian mom. It can be, you know, like a Jewish mom, an Italian mom. It's just a mom who yeah. loves their son or their daughter so much that you are willing to go out of your way to be the quote unquote bad guy. Mm-hmm. To make sure they find forever happiness. And that is not a cultural thing. That's a human thing. Yeah. And what's really cool about Crazy Rich Asians is too, is that while it appeals to a broad audience with this like rom- com- romantic comedy core and our associations with our family and all those other things and just the overall visual appeal of it, it also is very Asian. Yes. There are so many things about it that would go unexplained, but... As an Asian American audience or an Asian audience, we watch that film, we get it. Like the Mahjong scene, for example. Like the aunties. Like the aunties, the exactly. Aunties. The grandmother, mm-hmm. the dumplings. The little knots here and there, they're everywhere. And those are very uniquely culturally Asian. And I think that that's also really important. Because while opening up to a Western audience very successfully, it held on to its identity as an Asian film. I think that that film achieve that very masterfully uh, certainly certainly set a stage for for the few films and the television shows that immediately followed like right after that you have searching featuring john cho as the lead actor again it's a story about a father trying to find his missing daughter nothing about that is specifically asian but he led that role and the entire film which is told by a screen is is just a great way to see a Asian male protagonist is, exist on screen, not in a way that exotifies him or accentuates the fact that, oh, we have an Asian-led like lead, and thus it must be about martial arts or whatever it is. It's about a very, very human um, kind of universal issue. And a bunch of different stories and films started to kind of come to the forefront and ex- exist in this kind of spotlight, you know, um, and proliferate. And I think that on a broad scope, in a bigger Hollywood sense, this is great. But in a more independent sense, as an independent Asian American filmmaker, this is also super important because as soon as you have that box of success to back up Asian American run materials, you can go and start to, as a filmmaker, you can go up to studios and producers and be like, well, we have so-and-so, which was so successful in the box office because of so-and-so. So now here's an opportunity and I'm going to, I can, I can, I can use that as a way of propelling my own project forward. And it really becomes a stepping stone for a lot of Asian American storytellers and filmmakers to, to put their work out there. And hopefully make some history happen. Because of the movie, like Crazy Rich Asians, we have an actress that have ex- exploded, mm-hmm. Aquafina. Not only does she have that hilarious role, which made her stand out above anyone else, she's also a comedian. And then there was The Farewell, and now she has her own sitcom. Mm-hmm. Because of little roles like this, or big roles like this, she's able to make history. And you guys, know, you know all about the Golden Globes, because you have two of your favorite actress representing Mm-hmm. Um, well, Sandra Oh is definitely Sandra up, up there. I mean, I've 
I didn't even know that she was my favorite character in Grey's Anatomy until she left. And I was just like, what's missing in this show? What's making me not want to watch it anymore? <laughs> oh, Christina's no longer here. Right. She's just magnetic on screen. And she's always been in everything that she's been in. And Killing Eve was super interesting in the sense that, which is what she recently wanted for and got the spotlight again, um, is that Killing Eve was originally not even written for, specifically for an Asian, uh, Asian character in mind. Uh, it's simply written for a character. Um, and she embodied that role so perfectly. Certainly, um, again, it's it's the case of, you know, she's holding on to her cultural background, but at the same time, it's she's, she's kind of breaking down that tokenistic look at, okay, we're hiring an Asian actor because there's something that this role calls for that needs to be Asian. Um, they kind of brought that, aspect of it i think there's one scene season two where she talks to her mother in korean or her dad in korean on a phone and that kind of brings it back into a little bit of that background just adding a nod to who she is as a character but that's not all there is about her there's so much more and i think that kind of appreciation is is really important and also at the same time a visibility too to to be able to, for, for a young aspiring actor or filmmaker to see someone like that on the screen and be like, oh, I can be the leading actor in a show not about martial arts. That's great. That's not my only in. I can go and pursue my dreams and use Sandra, someone like Sandra Oh as an example to tell producers that, yes, I'm marketable. And hopefully one day there's just so many of them um, out there that you no longer have to be like, here are the five examples. Because, you know, as we all know, um, as a as an Asian filmmaker pitching for a project, there's still a, a limited amount of examples that I can bring up. And hopefully one day I have to look through a plethora and be like, ooh, it's really hard to narrow down which one to use as an example. And we're, we're getting there. We're getting closer and closer to there. Even with like Parasite winning Parasite. Best Picture, which is groundbreaking it's not only an asian film that is entirely set in another country um but it's also a genre film i mean that's a that's just rare i think the last genre film um that won best picture was silence of the lambs back in 1993 you're just and like imdb <laughs> you're like straight up sitting, sitting next to a, a live version of imdb you know dates like the back of your hand it is so <laughs> impressive now let me just fact check real quick in my <laughs> mind. I think yes, because 1992 is Dances with Wolves. Yeah, yeah, 1993 is, is Silence of the Lambs. So now with everything booming, yeah, I know that growing up as an Asian American, it was not as proud. It mm-hmm. wasn't. It it you know you shied away from that. Yeah, a little bit. I tried to break away. I remember specifically, I was in high school. Mm-hmm. I went into math class, and it was like maybe the first week give or take of that class. A varsity basketball player sat next to me and he said, Oh, he sat down, he clapped his hands, and he rubbed together. He goes, I'm gonna pass math this semester. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, We are gonna fail together. And he was like, What? I was like, I'm not that kind of Asian. <laughs> and I remember pointing over, and actually it was Michelle, one of my best girlfriends, was sitting in the front, and I was yeah. like, she, I bet she's good at math. And she they were like, we both looked at each other mm. and we went, Yeah, let's go sit in the front. And, and it's like that stereotype. And I remember yeah. the look on his face when I told him I'm not that I'm not going to be good at math. I'm just not good at math. Uh-huh. He was so confused. Yeah. Like, I don't understand. Uh-huh. It's like saying that you don't like to eat rice. Like there was a disconnect. Like yeah. it, 
and I was like, no, it's a stereotype. And I know that stereotypes stem from some truth. Mm-hmm. However, that's what they also are. Mm-hmm. They're stereotypes. It doesn't apply for every single person. Yeah. And is there a specific incident when you grew up that you were either, you had a moment you're like, yeah, I really am Chinese and I stick out more than anyone else? Or I am proud to be Asian and that's why. So it's interesting because I grew up in a community that's very Asian American. I grew up in the Silicon Valley, uh, which has a, a large population of Asian American first generation immigrants. So the backstory of my youth is, is I think it's, it's kind of interesting and influential to who I am today, which is um, I spent the first two years of my, my time in the US in ESL, English as a second language, mm-hmm. um, in the Silicon Valley. And it was actually very prohibitive towards learning English because there were so many kids in my class that spoke Mandarin. And I remember out of a class of 30, there were 20 Mandarin speakers. As a kid, there's no way you can learn English in that environment. That's not how you learn a language. Because you guys will continue to speak Mandarin. Yeah, we continue to speak Mandarin. We got away with everything. We just, you know, we had our own system and et cetera, et cetera. And the teacher couldn't really get a handle on us because she didn't speak Mandarin. (laughs) Um, So Stronger in numbers. I know. So what happened was, and this is, don't laugh at me for saying this, but I think this is very telling of my character. I remember getting very sad. I would... I, I remember getting really sad that I would never be able to, the fear that I would never be able to get the most out of my education um, Such by, a good student. by not mastering the language, the gateway through which I learn anything. If I didn't know English fluently, I knew that I was never going to be able to learn history and you know um, science and all those other things in this country. So I actually went to my mother and I remember I cried (laughs) and I said, please, please move me to a place where I have to learn English to survive. (laughs) You're such a good student. It's really awful. Um, So anyways, uh, so we we actually went to a Catholic school that's private um, that didn't require you to take um, to to pass your English aptitude test to going to their regular program. In fact, they did not have an ESL. And there's nobody that spoke Mandarin in the entire middle school that I went to. It was a small middle school, but I was the only Mandarin speaker. And I went in there for seventh grade and eighth grade. I started off not knowing anything, and I graduated a valedictorian. <laughs> oh my goodness. Your listeners are going to hate me. You, I, no, it's so inspiring because <laughs> you took one school year. And you changed the course of your life. And then you were able... I was fluent after that. Yeah, but then, like, I mean, I know this about you. But then you got a full scholarship. Right. To college. Yeah. Not just any college. Right. That, like, you you got full scholarship to, like, USC. Yeah. Yeah, that's not an easy thing to do. And it, that doesn't... I mean, I don't know if that has to do with you being Asian. But that is just how I'm very competitive. It's I not, think it comes down to my incredible my kind of rigid stubbornness and my refusal to fail it has taken you to great places oh thank you from valedictorian to not speaking a word a school year out that is insanity i i I think that thank you um so 
but the thing is, like, I also understood that I was a kid. I was young. And this is the time to do that. This is the time to absorb the language just by being within an environment, immersed in an environment. I know that the later I do that, the harder it was going to be. Yeah, but when you're a kid, you don't think that. You, like, a lot of kids would have stuck to ESL because that's comfort zone, because that's familiar with them. Mm -hmm. And they're able to create those bonds with those kids because yeah. that's home. No one would purposely say, pluck me out and throw me into complete <laughs> deserted space. I have no one, no idea what to talk about. Like well, that is that shows you and your upbringing to like the core of who you are, which is you will you will not just beat down any obstacle. You're going to make that into a plateau. You're like, that's not an obstacle. Watch me. I'm going to beat you down. I'm going to be number one. I think that's the Leo in me, probably. Like now we're going to bring in astrology <laughs> into this. Um, but uh, so what's really interesting. So the point of bringing up the, the Catholic school thing was that that was the time when I started to feel culturally other. I think more than any other time in my life, that was the time when it really stood out. Because, um, so my family didn't have any religious affiliations. We went to a Catholic pri uh, private school simply because it was the only environment where I could legally enroll and also have to learn English by ways of survival. Um, so I didn't really understand Catholicism as a religion at all. So that was a foreign language. And... Also, being amongst a bunch of kids at probably, in my opinion, the cruelest time of their adolescence yeah. is another level of a foreign language to me. And then on top of that, there's the English. Yeah. So I think that that was definitely a time where I became very self-conscious of how different I was than everyone else. I remember... Um, so my mother, who became a homemaker uh, uh, after I was born, would cook us dinner every single day. She was such a diligent mother in terms of making sure that we always had four different plates every meal and dinner, always like a whole fish and all these other things. Yep. She would pack me these thoughtfully composed lunches full of braised seaweed, tripe, brisket, Which you appreciate tofu, now, which... But yeah. How did, how did your um, inner 12 year old feel about that in an well, all girls Catholic school in so, Silicon Valley? Well, it's boys and girls, which is oh. actually even worse. Um, I, yeah, I never thought it was uh, co ed. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Like puberty. Yeah. And I know it was, it was a jungle out there. Um, but I, so growing up, I thought that was great. I love eating all those stuff, you know? But suddenly I realized, oh, you know, that's actually really not accepted in this school. People would, like, throw my food around oh my and chew on it and then spit it right out and, like, make fun of, like, they would think that I'm eating frogs and lizards. And, and I just felt so excluded and so kind of ashamed. I was made to feel really ashamed of things that I used to enjoy. And... Um, and that was definitely very amplified in that environment. And honestly, like, they're kids. They didn't know any better. Hopefully by now they do. I hope but so. they've never been exposed to that. And they've never understood that you can actually eat a whole animal. Because of course you would. Otherwise, what would you do with the rest of the parts? But they didn't know that and thought it was gross. Fine. Kids like to have food fights. Fine. You know, they're young and stupid and all that. But as a kid who also wanted approval, who also wanted to be normal, that was really hard for me. And I think that I used to be a really extroverted kid growing up. 
And that's when the silence came. Not only because I couldn't speak the language for a while, but also because I felt like anything I said would have been wrong. You weren't safe. You didn't yeah. feel like you were safe or accepted. So you become alone. And mm-hmm. You become isolated. Yeah. Yeah. I started to question everything, all of my choices, anything that I enjoyed. I started asking myself, like, am I too Asian? Am I, am I too different? And it really, for a child um, who didn't really have the backbone to be like, well, screw you. I'm just going to be me. I started actually thinking that those things are gross and started to reject them at home and to refuse to, you know, have my mother pack me my lunches and started eating, you know, just what everyone else is eating. Um, Lunchables. 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 I remember begging my parents. This is so nasty. Please, please, like, instead of giving me a fully balanced meal, can I please just have some crackers and, and... canned ham ham. Mm -hmm. and fake cheese can i please just have that and sugar water i want that my mom was the same way because we didn't i mean she didn't pack lunch because she she just didn't have the time to do that but i remember when we talked about like what we ate the night before Mm -hmm. and it would be like pickled veg with like sauteed calamari oh yum right or like whole steam whole fish Mm -hmm. or spare ribs with black bean sauce Mm. any anything like that I would get made fun of. So I stopped saying that. I used to always say pasta or spaghetti or pizza. And it came down to, I didn't know how any of those things taste. So when I had to describe it, I didn't know how to say it. I was like, oh, like pasta. And I was really ashamed. And I figured I had to assimilate. Because if you don't, you're not, you don't become one of them, you'll get picked on. Mm -hmm. So it was very... I learned in a very, very short period of time, speak like them, dress like them. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, they will come after you and kids are ruthless at that age. Oh gosh, yeah. They, because they don't really know consequence. And I remember I used to be angry when I used to get picked on and I hated being Asian. I hated being Chinese. I was so, like Chinese New Year, I'd be like, oh my God, everyone's going to know I'm Chinese. Don't take me out of school. I'd rather go to school. Like Red Pockets, which was the lucky money. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, I wanted the money. But I was like, oh my God, I don't want to put that red pocket in my backpack for first day of school because someone's going to see it. Don't get me wrong. A lot of the schools, like my grammar school, had Chinese kids. Mm. And even in high school, there were a few of us. But still, you you knew. You looked at each other in high school and you're like, shed that identity. When you're here, yeah. you're just like everyone else. Mm-hmm. Eat the arroz con pollo. Like, play basketball. Don't be good at math. Don't be good at physics. Don't show that you have like a Chinese name. Mm-hmm. A lot of us have Chinese names and we would stay away from that because if they knew you had any kind of culture, you'll be called a fob, yeah. which means fresh off the boat, which means like you're not American. And then yeah. they'll say that you smell like mothballs. Yeah. You know, and and you never spoke Chinese. And I remember when I was young, I if I had to get off in Chinatown, I would be so embarrassed. I'm like, oh my God, everyone's going to be making fun of me because I got off in Chinatown or 8th Avenue. And it's something that I feel like as an adult, I look back on it, it's so silly. Because at the end of the day, look at look at your face. Like, you mm-hmm. look at yourself in the mirror. I could not be prouder of my roots now, but there was a huge identity crisis of being Chinese and being submissive and or being quiet. And we're not all like that. We're people. Yeah. Some people are more quiet. Some people are more out there and loud and, and hyper. Mm-hmm. Or funny. But as Asians, we've been in media and society, we've been pigeonholed into these little small frames that if we don't fit in, 
people are like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Unless you're like completely, extremely out there, like Margaret Cho. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I saw Margaret Cho, people were disgusted by her. Yeah. I remember, I remember um, her reputation when I was younger thinking about her. And it was not a good one. She um, was all tatted up. Yeah. She talked about sex, all yeah. like taboo subjects. And people are like, what is wrong with this person? Like, your Asian parents must be disgusted by you. Mm-hmm. You bring shame to the family. You have, you dishonor them. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, well, where do you fit in as an American? Not just an Asian American. Yeah. Do you do what you're comfortable in in your own skin? Or do you continue to fit in and, and continue to hide your true identity? Yeah, I mean, it's. I feel like this kind of discrimination applies to so many different groups, right? Like Asians are like this, women is like this too. Oh, you're you're too quiet. Like you're not speaking your part. You're too meek. You, you're too loud. Why are you so loud? Go back home, and you know, go back you're, home. You know, smile more. Oh, you smile too much. Like there's all these things. What is right? There's no right. There's there's no way you can actually just be because of everyone else's expectation of you. I feel like, yes, there is a growth and there is an uprise right now, a positive uprise in media for Asian Americans, right? For everyone, whether they're from Singapore, Thailand, everything. But there are still stereotypes. And I feel like, especially in this day and age, especially like day like today, we have come so far. And if you asked four months ago, yes, I was really, really proud to be Asian. I was really excited because there were all these films coming out. Mulan was coming out March 27th, uh, yeah. and that got postponed due to this virus thing. And now being Asian-American, it's terrifying because now you're considered a threat to society because mm-hmm. of the whole disease thing. And it's, I don't feel safe. I don't feel mm-hmm. safe in the neighborhood that I grew up in my entire life. I don't feel safe taking that transportation of subway or the bus without people giving you a look. I walk down the hall to throw out my trash and people literally take an extra step away from me. Mm -hmm. I am the same person who I was four months ago before this whole Corona COVID-19 disease happened. Mm -hmm. And now I feel like this has set us back as a group way back. Yeah. Especially in like Chinatown. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is... uh I think that recent events really highlighted how much more growing we as a society has to do. Um, I think that in a time of panic and fear, people especially resort to kind of their lowest selves, right? They start to like identify the blame. They start to target their fears and change that into hatred. And this just happens in a lot of times of crises. And because uh, our Asianness is an external identifier that it becomes especially easy for it to be a target. Um, even though it's a global disease and it's also something that's n- that occurs to humanity time and time again, it doesn't matter. It's the fact that people need something to watch out for. Something that they can feel like, oh, they can blame this, that somehow it makes more sense that way. And... Um, and yeah, it's 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 very unfortunate because we're most definitely not responsible for this. No, and um, you have leaders, our own leader of our country, says it's the Chinese virus. Yeah, and that's very problematic because the thing is like, even if it originated from a region in China, okay, even if that, that is actually what happened, a, a virus 
any kind of virus would emerge somewhere in this world, right? It's not the fault of those people. Why would they want that to emerge from their place? It, it's not. It, it's not anything that's done within our human control. Um, what we could control is, you know, being considerate people towards our peers in stopping the spread, in in containing it in the ways that we know how, which is making sure that we understand that every one of us could potentially have it. And really the best way to contain it is to create distance with other people, to understand characteristics of this disease, this virus, so that way we could, we can do everything that we can to, um, to kind of stop its reach as it grows larger and larger. That's what really we should be doing as opposed to um, pointing fingers at innocent people who's already have to worry about this disease themselves, you know? And creating, like, hate crimes. Everyone is targeting Asians, and whether it's verbal or physical mm-hmm. abuse, it's not okay. And yeah. as a society, we need to be better. We right. need to help each other. We need to be compassionate during this time. And let me tell you, that disease does not care if you're Italian, if you're Irish, if you're... It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. A disease is going to come after you regardless. Mm-hmm. So there's no need to stay away from Asian people because that makes no sense. Right. None of it makes sense. And although a lot of communities, a lot of Chinese communities have taken that hit, a lot of people stayed away from Chinatown, whether it's in Queens, Brooklyn, or Manhattan. Yep. And now, because of the regulation that it's only takeout only for all restaurants, we need to take that same mentality. We need to support each other. Mm-hmm. We need to figure out how we can rebuild after this time or during this time. Reach out. If you think you have any kind of anger or frustration, channel what you can control. Mm-hmm. Be a positive person and ask your neighbor be a good neighbor see if they need anything Mm -hmm. be a good friend you can still connect with people because we are emotional animals Mm -hmm. and we do need to have social interaction but thanks to technology we can be smarter about that don't hoard Mm -hmm. don't buy extra things that you don't need to buy like we can continue to be good people and support each other without fueling that negativity Mm -hmm. absolutely um, I think that there's a lot of ways that we can help each other. I think that right now, one of the things, and besides all the scientific things like keeping your distance, keeping your hands clean, um, you know, um, impose some sort of self quarantine whenever you can, um, and et cetera, et cetera. But also, this will be a really good time to connect with others because right now, I know that. I myself, growing up as an only child, a little bit of distance from other people in my own room doesn't really, it's not a terrible thing, but I have heard from so, so many people how lonely and sad they are that they are now cut off from human contact. Mm -hmm. And they're constantly being flooded by these negative news about our world. And that takes a strong mental toll on people. And our emotional wellness and physical wellness are connected. If we're stressed out, if we can't sleep, if we are constantly in a state of anxiety, that's going to affect our physical health. So that happens to younger people and older people, but especially older people who are right now very helpless. The fact that they are slower, that they're not as tech savvy, um, that they they, they are more vulnerable to this disease makes it so that they're especially cut off from the world. 
I mean, it's really important right now for people to reach out to the, their elderly family members and connect with them and make sure that they're mentally and physically okay. Um, this would be something that, that would cause immediate benefit to others. Um, so. so remember to help each other out. And also, you have all this time on your hands, so why not start exploring some foreign films that you might not usually be interested in? Mm -hmm. If you haven't seen Parasite, please go watch it. I know you have to read subtitles, but it's so worth it. It's so it's so worth it. Um, and you can actually learn a lot from Parasite during a time like this, because I'm not going to give it away for those who haven't watched it yet. But if there is a little bit of a quarantine situation there and how they made the best of it. It's all in, It's all a mind game. Mm -hmm. and how you can change your mindset and not live in fear but think of more like positive ways and how to be grateful yes definitely i mean parasite is a great example of um of something that i'm seeing a lot I, we're, we're making a little bit of jump but i do think that there's a comparison here of um of the gap between the wealthy and the poor um and the idea that you know, this is a country that's based on the idea of American dream. That you, as, you, as long as you, as you work hard and as you dream it, it will come to you. But the thing is, it's not as simple as that. There are a lot of hurdles and sometimes impossible hurdles that make people who are born in an impoverished environment or, or upbringing, it makes it just that much more impossible for them to pull themselves up on a bootstrap. And it's unfair to say that they can. And this is a time that that really gets brought up. If we look around at our environment, we live in a, a city where the, the gap between the wealthy and the poor is very noticeable and very, very strong. We're looking around at those people who are delivering our food, who are um, doing various things in the service industry that, um, that are, are basically their third job so that they could put food on the table because that is the work that it takes for them to survive just to survive in this city and the fact that we you know you are you have a stable job and i teach as well so i continue to have work right now but there are a lot of people who don't have the fortune that we do they have to keep working otherwise they wouldn't be able to pay their rent those sort of people that need a lot of help right now. So it's not a time to kind of cast a blame on any specific population of people, but it's a time to see, okay, we're comfortable, we're at home, we can work from our computer. What can we do now to help those people who cannot? Because guess what? We're all in this together. If they get it, we get it too. You know, we're in the same boat. So we have to help them. If anything, even selfishly for our own survival, but I mean, let's hope that it's because we have general love and compassion for our fellow human beings. One would hope. One would hope. One would hope. So talking about being Asian, you have a recipe that you're going to share with us because, because a lot of restaurants are closed and you're not able to get that comfort food. I know that you have a comfort food that you like. Yes. So tell us about the recipe of the week. Okay, cool. So um, I love spicy food. I, I do not. Up, yeah, I, <laughs> I know that from working together. I was like, oh, what? But it's okay. It's not everyone. You guys can you guys can um, adjust the heat depending on your yes, comfort level. That's the beauty of spicy food. It can always be mild, but you know. Um, so um, this dish has a special Chinese name, which is called ants climbing a tree. 
Um, it's called Anne's Climb Me a Tree because it's a dish with cellophane noodles and crispy ground pork. So at a glance, it doesn't really look like it, but it's sort of you like squint your eyes, yeah, <laughs> have opened up your imagination. It looks like tiny little ants climbing up a willowy tree tree branch, which does not sound appetizing at all. But I promise you, it's absolutely delicious. It's just. It's like whimsical. It's whimsical. It definitely is whimsical. I think that if you go to a Chinese restaurant, a, a Chinese restaurant that carries authentic regional dishes, this name would still not be associated with the English name. It probably is literal like ground pork, spicy ground pork with cellophane noodles. <laughs> but the Chinese name that everyone knows is Anne's Climbing Up Tree. So the dish is really simple to make. Um, if you have um, if you have any kind of Asian markets nearby, you should be able to make this dish. This recipe will be available on Simmer Down with Viv's Instagram page as well as www.simmerdownwithviv.com. Serena, this dish sounds absolutely amazing. But before we go and start cooking this, I do want to bring it back full circle of mm-hmm. how you feel it is to be an Asian American in 2020. I think it's awesome, and I'm very proud to be an Asian American. I think more so than ever before. Um, I have my, I mean, my homeland of Taiwan. I've seen how this, you know, they have come together to respond to COVID-19. The kind of organization the government there has done. It just shows that they're really strong people, and I have a lot of faith in us persevering. I know it's going to be a hard few months coming up, but um, but I think this is this is a time more important than ever to be really proud of our heritage and make sure that people still remember about the contributions that we have made globally and how interesting our culture is, um, as opposed to just this one thing that does not define us. I totally agree. I feel like it's more important than ever to be proud of being an Asian American mm-hmm. because I know a lot of the older generations don't have a platform to speak on and they mm-hmm. get picked on and bullied a lot or even harassed. But as younger generations, we're able to use that voice to spread knowledge and spread different ways to support and rebuild. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't let the hate create more hate. We should turn that hate into positivity and love. And when the time comes... We all have a part to take in our local Asian communities to help them build as well because Mm -hmm. we are one and we're in this together as one. Yep. So thank you so much for taking the time to explain and share how it is to be Asian American, how it is to be a professional in the Asian American media industry. And of course... That recipe sounds absolutely amazing. So we are, and we're going to go into the kitchen and we're going to whip it up. And I can't wait to talk to you guys next week. Have a good one. Be safe out there. Simmer Down with Viv is produced by me, Vivian Chan, and Tracy Gushkin from With You Media. For more information, visit Simmer Down with Viv on Instagram, With You Media on Instagram, or SimmerDownWithViv.com and WithYouMedia.com. Material has just debuted their line of pans. It's from their 29 collection. 29 because it's a little nod to that magical element, copper, which means you have consistent heat distributing for the perfect cook. There's no Teflon, no lead, and no fumes. There's also a lip design that curves slightly outward for smooth pouring. You can pop them in the dishwasher, and they're also oven-friendly for up to 500 degrees. This coated pan can be yours 
for only $95. It's valued at $235. And if you use the code SIMMERDOWNWITHFIFTH, you get an extra 10% off. Now slide on over to that site, materialkitchen.com, and get yourself a new pan. You're welcome.